I am Debbie George Addis. Today on America Can We Talk, we're going to hit three stories, or maybe four. Howard Schultz, candidacy for president, and the Venezuela situation, creating a very inconvenient truth for the Democrats in 2020. The Women's March tries to hijack America's women. Don't let them. Today we introduce Catherine Kirsten, who's written brilliantly on what a conservative feminist thinks. And third, the State of the Union tonight, Gladys Knight versus Maxine Waters. Gladys got it right. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome back to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. You likely heard that former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz is very seriously looking at running for president. And this has brought about a lot of conversation. It's extremely healthy for America. Because one reason he said he's looking at running, in fact, maybe he is running, I'm not sure if he's made a firm decision, but one reason he gave was the unbelievably idiotic tax plan Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has in mind, her essentially soak the rich tax plan. She, Alexandria, is talking about the highest income earners in America, having a 70% tax rate, piled on by another Democrat congresswoman from Minnesota, saying let's make it 90, also talk about basically a net worth tax. One, These are the reasons, among others, Howard Schultz gave for considering running for president. So first, as a small bit of entertainment, I want to share a text, a, a, a rather a tweet put out by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who says, why don't people ever tell billionaires who want to run for president that they need to work their way up or that maybe they should start with city council first? Okay, obviously she, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, got a little bit offended by some people's comments that she is clueless and says clueless things on a daily basis and people thought maybe she should have figured out America or the state of New York or maybe even a little city first before she got into Congress. But the irony of this idiotic text is that Howard Schultz, who may run as an independent or president, grew up in the projects, grew up in the lowest income of lowest income possible in America, and his presence as a former CEO, a current billionaire, famous American, his presence puts the lie to what the Democrats try to say, that the American dream has died. He is the American dream. He's showing America the American dream. I'm not advocating him for president. I'm telling you, he's making them crazy because his life story is proof that the American dream, that the belief in a country, in America, a free market economy where you work hard and get ahead is still available for anyone. And on that subject, this is a great time to start thinking about 2020, which is amazing. We have presidential elections again next year, but we have Howard Schultz running along with a series of other Democrats who've thrown their hat in the ring. And the polling, the early polling is showing that Howard Schultz would beat any of the Democrats who put their names in the ring. Now, he's not going to run as a Democrat. He recognizes he won't get their bid, but he is really making the Democrats nervous already. So nervous, as a matter of fact, that the Democrats, the, the big money, anti-American, George Soros type people are already funding ugly 
smear campaign type research trying to dig up something rotten to say about or to dig up about Howard Schultz past. So we have the George Soros bankrolled media matters digging, 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 basically came up with nothing. Then we have American Bridge 21st, a war chest also funded by Soros and uh, investment ba- investment executive Bernard Schwartz, a real estate tycoon uh, George Marcus. And they've dug and dug and dug to find something bad about Howard Schultz. And they've come up with the fact that over the course of his the time he was president of Starbucks, they had to pay out $46 million uh, to various employees over many years in terms of wage and compensation uh, litigation. It wasn't even litigation. It's probably at an agency. But the point is $46 million for a company of Starbucks size is nothing. And they know it. But you know that expression in the military that you know you're over the target because you're taking fire? That's exactly what's happening to the Howard Schultz campaign. I'm loving it. He is making the Democrats nervous. They are already looking to smear and destroy him. Last point about Howard Schultz in the 2020 elections. The big issue, of course, in 2020, one big issue will be immigration, border security, and all of that. But it will also be the biggest, in fact, the most, the biggest themed issue in 2020 is whether we Americans still believe in the American dream and a free market economy in capitalism, or are we going to go down the path of socialism, which is obviously what Bernie Sanders ran on, and it is what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is pleading with America to accept. And America's watching this, you know, this this tax Americans because they have the money and we want to take it away from them. They're, they're watching this mindset of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. At the same time, the world is watching Venezuela fall into ruin. And you'll hear leftists say, well, you know, but we wouldn't be like Venezuela. We'd be smarter than that. We'll be smart, Democrat socialists. There's a great, great comic I want to share with you. I believe we have it ready to show. Okay, the guy sticking the fork into the outlet, something your mother taught you not to do, start, you know, when you were a baby, if you ever even uh, got close to doing it. So fork is socialism. The caption, everyone else who's tried this has gotten hurt. And he says, everyone else is doing it the wrong way. This is the argument of the American left, that somehow America can take the rotten, ugly idea of socialism, and because we'll do it better, because we're smarter, because we're nicer, we'll somehow be better and it'll come out okay. But it can't. It can't. Socialism itself is the problem. It's like saying we can do slavery better. Slavery is an evil thing. In fact, socialism is a form of slavery. But people who say we Americans will somehow do socialism better have no idea what they're talking about. In Venezuela, one of the most oil-rich countries, in fact, the most oil-rich country in the world, prosperous a nation on track with the prosperity of Western civilization until they made the mistake in 1997 of electing Hugo Chavez. His election, of course, immediately after that, they embraced socialism. He nationalized the uh, oil industry, nationalized the uh, energy industry, nationalized health care. And I want to put a comma there and point this out. Hugo Chavez did, when he came to power, exactly the same things that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her left-wing cabal in Washington are trying to do. 
when she's got her Green New Deal, she's talking about nationalizing America's energy sector. She's talking about socializing our energy. When she includes in her Green New Deal a healthcare free for all, Medicare for all, she is nationalizing healthcare. There is no protection on the planet Earth to keep America from having the same decline into ruin as happened in Venezuela, except for the voters, except for people like you who are willing to recognize, charming as some people think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, clever as they may think her tweets are, or yearning for a uh, somehow utopian notion we're gonna create a perfect country where everything's fair and everybody has everything they want, exactly the same promises Hugo Chavez gave to Venezuela before he destroyed it. This, the only protection America has against becoming Venezuela is the voters. It is you, the voters, understanding that socialism by any other name is still socialism and it is a horrible, evil, destructive force in all of human history and nothing, nothing good Americans can do can make the outcome any different. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is my first five on America Can We Talk. We come back from this very brief break. We're going to be talking to Katherine Kirsten about what feminism should mean for conservative women. Stay tuned. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I also want to make a brief mention of, my, mention of my music. A lot of times the show starts and I can hear the music in my ear. And I'm, it's just the best music. The um, artist is Krista Branch. She sings the music. Her husband writes both the lyrics and the music. They're a stellar couple. Krista Branch, great songs, great patriotic songs, including one, I Am America, which is actually a great point, back to my first five, you are America. How you vote, how you tell your friends you're going to vote, how you inspire your friends to think about preserving America, you make America. But here we are. We're going to have an interview uh, this morning. Oh, good. We have her on, at least on screen. We couldn't somehow work out the connection with uh, Catherine Kirsten joining us uh, by video, but she's on the phone with us. Uh, and I believe we have Catherine Kirsten. Hello. Hello, Debbie. Hi, nice to have you. And I'm going to tell you, folks, uh, Catherine Kersney, the briefest introduction, I could give a long one, but that might get kind of slow here. She is a, first of all, I've met her before, really, really neat lady, lives in Minnesota, but she is a writer and an attorney. She's a senior fellow at the Center of the American Experiment. She served as a columnist for the Star Tribune in Minneapolis uh, as an opinion columnist. She was a founding director of the Center of the American Experiment and served as his chair from 1996 to 1998. And very quickly, Center of the American Experiment is a state-based think tank very similar to what we have here in the great state of Texas. We have the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Nearly every state has a conservative policy-oriented think tank. She was among the founders, and she's written several pieces. I want to talk about this today, the idea of what does it mean to be a conservative feminist? So again, welcome, Catherine. Pleasure to be with you. 
Great to have you. Okay, so she has two pieces, and I'm going to mention, folks, everything we're talking about. You can go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, and you can find a link, especially to the first article I want to talk about. She wrote a piece in, in a publication called First Things called False Feminism. We've had to listen in the last, ever since President Trump was elected, to the idea that the people who speak out and, and embrace the uh, Women's March, they go to Washington and places all around the country and do Women's March, that they stand for American women. As I said, as I said several times in this show and in speaking, they are hijacking the idea of what it means to stand up for women. So we're going to talk today, uh, hear Catherine Kirsten's perspective on this false feminism thing. So to start with, Catherine, you wrote about the idea that feminism, as the left defines it, or feminism today, has really become damaged by, or, or when it was mixed in with the sexual revolution, ended up confusing the idea of feminism. I know it's a big topic to start with, but you can just talk, could you just talk about what you mean by that idea? Uh, the idea of, of the kind of two waves of, of change that uh, uh, were meant to, to help women and have in fact uh, ended up in certain unintended respects hurting them a great deal. The, the sexual uh, liberation movement uh, at first and then uh, feminism in its kind of gender feminism form, not not classical feminism through equal rights, you know, uh, uh, justice and equality for women, that kind of thing. Uh, but what's been called gender feminism, which is essentially uh, dedicated to the notion that relationships between men and women are defined uh, in terms of a power struggle. Uh, you mean that that kind of distinction, right? Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. So uh, my my article's um, uh, subtitle is "How We Got from Sexual Liberation to At Me Too," and I talk about the fact that uh, sexual liberation, which was meant to to make men and women uh, more equal and natural in their sexual relationships, has actually ended up um, harming women uh, and breeding. Um, anger and distrust uh, between men and women to the point that uh, today men are increasingly, and I'm talking about men of goodwill, increasingly reluctant to get involved with women at all because uh, of uh, you know, what the sort of end of their professional lives that that could, uh, could indicate if uh, a woman decides 40 years after an encounter that it wasn't consensual and that, uh, you know, uh, this man is a sexual predator. That's the kind of, of thing that I, I explain in my article, how we got from the first to uh, the At Me Too movement today. Well, you know, I love, first of all, I really commend our listeners to read this whole article that we're we'll be talking about. Uh, we're speaking with Catherine Kirsten, the author of First Things, or she, it's published in First Things, False Feminism, How We Got From Sexual Liberation to Me Too. And, you know, it's such a big topic, and she raised basically two pieces I wanted to talk about today. I'm starting with the more recent one, and a lot of what drove the Women's March was this Me Too movement, this idea that women were finally going to be able to speak up and... Uh, and d explain or, or complain about things that were, and some things were wrong, obviously the, the Weinstein conduct toward women, but you make a great point about the Me Too feminism really corners women or portrays women as helpless and weak, which is the opposite of what they want to be. Yes, you know, that's, that's exactly right. Um, 
of course, that goes back uh, to the uh, to the founding mothers of um, uh, second wave feminism. We're talking about Betty Friedan and and uh, Gloria Steinem and others. Um, interestingly, uh, in the feminine mystique and uh, uh, Betty Friedan and in, in Gloria Steinem's books, um, these women portray women uh, not as uh, ready for equal rights, you know, taking responsibility for their own lives and, and confronting challenges successfully. They, they portray women as, um, as, as empty, weak, baffled by uh, modern society. Uh, Susan Faludi, who wrote a, a very important book back then, uh, talked about the patriarchy whispering in women's ears. And she's talking about the most accomplished and successful women and, and like, a, like the devil kind of telling them uh, uh, that they should do things that are destructive to themselves. Uh, so yes, uh, the, the stage was set 60 years ago for women to begin to reflexively view themselves as victims of the patriarchy and to give up any hope of, of accomplishing anything without major government help uh, and assistance, which is really where we, where we still are today with the Women's March, as you point out. It is so where we are. Well, you make reference in your, uh, in your piece about three famous works that were supposedly the defining statement for women in modern, this second wave feminism, one being Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, 1963, Gloria Steinem, 1983, and then Susan Flutie, 1992. Mm -hmm. It is so interesting because they they held themselves out as uh, leaders of as kind of people who are going to steer women in a new direction, but all of them essentially began by picturing where women are in society from a position of weakness. It's like they were arguing them women back into what back into a bad position where they didn't really where they weren't at the time they wrote. Is that a good question? You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um I think we we see this just counterintuitive kind of notion of women as as empty vessels, let's say, um, at the center of the Me Too movement today. So, for example, um, Eric Schneiderman, who was uh, the Attorney General of New York until May 2018, uh, is is a perfect example. He was actually a, a very uh, outspoken proponent of the At Me Too movement uh, until four women came forward to uh, say that he had sadomasochistically abused them uh, in, in, in sexual relationships. The, the odd thing was these were four liberal uh, and influential feminists, each one of whom had returned to Schneiderman time and time again by their own admission after he abused them in this way. And we have to credit uh, New York Times' Maureen Dowd for pointing out uh, why is it that women can, can lean in in the business world, but they can't walk out. Uh, when a man treats them disrespectfully in a, in a feminist way. But here are these four very prominent, well-known feminists who can't stand up for themselves uh, against a, a sadomasochistic predator. It's that kind of weakness and inability to recognize and defend their own dignity that I think we're, we're seeing so much today in the At Me Too movement. We do, and on a related topic, I'm so glad you wrote this piece. It's just very thought-provoking. You talked the, near the beginning of the piece about the, uh, the scene on college campuses and how, on the one hand, the sexual revolution was supposed to make 
the argument was women are equal with men, and so they can engage in casual intimacy just like men seem to want to, and it resulted in the hookup culture. And so the hookup yeah. culture, which <clears throat> seemed to, was the argument of, you know, the sexual revolution outcome is, yes, there's a lot of casual, meaningless human intimacy. But on the other hand, we end up on the college campuses with an exaggerated um, attention to the claims of sex harassment or people claiming I was sexually assaulted or as you alluded to a moment ago, people, women, saying long after some uh, relationship with a man that it wasn't consensual, they weren't sure, they, they, now they think about it, it wasn't consensual. And it's kind of like the sexual revolution tried to make women equal with men in, in terms of, of casual intimacy, but it ended up in a situation where we have a hookup culture that honestly women don't want. They don't appreciate it, and they end up. So, I mean, it was like it was a unfortunate clash between the hook, the hookup culture resulted from the sexual revolution, and yet feminism says stand up for yourself if you've been abused, and the women are seem unable to stand up for themselves in these in normal human intimacy or interactions in college campuses. Yes, yes, and and they can't. Um they can't accept uh, their own role uh, in uh, a sexual encounter gone bad, let's say um, contributory negligence. So the sexual revolution taught women uh, that they are, are expected to have casual sex with men who don't respect or care for them. In other words, to be, to be equal to men, they, they are supposed to be able to engage in you know, casual sex without any heartache, uh, without any negative um, repercussions. Well, we know in the real world that uh, things don't happen that way. Men and women uh, approach sex, or, or generally speaking, in, in very different ways. So we end up with women who don't know how to say no, feel they can't say no because they're expected to enjoy casual sex with men in order to be their equals. Uh, but when they uh, get drunk, uh, go upstairs with a guy after 10 beers at a frat party, uh, take off their clothes, uh, the next day when he doesn't call, uh, all of a sudden they decide that, you know, they played no role in this. That Me Too movement says um, that we must believe survivors, right? There, there can't be any kind of reasoned, objective search for truth here in the role each party played. So when, when you make... Uh, consent, the, the only standard of whether a sexual encounter is legitimate, let's say, uh, you, you take tremendous power from women because, of course, when you don't know what you're consenting to, this kind of empty act that is supposed to mean nothing to either party in the casual setting, um, that then you're, you're just you're going to fall farther and farther into the, the misery uh, that we see at the bottom of these kinds of anonymous sexual encounters. You had several good terms. I, I circled them. I was trying to highlight your article and the whole end up kind of the whole thing is one big highlight. So I, then I tried to take notes. You had a great term, begrudgingly consensual sex. The idea that because the culture has said sexual revolution says anything goes, no moral no more mores or morals surrounding human intimacy. So women feel like they have to say yes, but even in their hearts, they're kind of like, it's begrudging. But I guess, you know, we had a nice evening. He has, so I guess I have to do this. And the, the result of the uh, diminishment of the woman feeling like she's in charge of her life, that she's able to make choices, is, is really greatly harmed. 
Yes, that, that's exactly right. And actually, I use that term begrudgingly, consensual sex. But I'm, it's a quote from Jessica Bennett, who was the New York Times' first gender editor. And she herself said in the New York Times that she and her friends had often said yes, quote, yes, when we really mean no. And she says, too often we, we think, in fact, not, not too often, often she says, we think it's easier to say yes and just get it over with uh, rather than saying no when it's not something we actually want to do. So she's acknowledging herself that, um, the, that socially supported ways to say no for women which were um, the targets of the sexual revolution um, uh, no longer exist. And women are supposed to think that they must enjoy sex with men who want their bodies but don't care or respect for them as, as individual human beings. You know, these are you, you do such a great job integrating a lot of history and uh, kind of cultural developments. And I want to be sure we're making them clear for our listeners. So one is we had the sexual revolution of the 60s, roughly speaking, where there was kind of a... Uh, advocating for the rights of women to be equal and therefore there was no not to be any meaning attached to human intimacy as as more men seem to be amenable to so women and men are supposed to equally enjoy sex and casual sex was fine and then so that gave rise to the hookup culture which then gave rise to women feeling like they're expected to engage in intimacy with someone with whom they have no interest. In fact, they might even be firmly disinterested. So it ultimately, it was based on a lie that women and men approach intimacy in the same way. Is that right? Yes, that that's exactly right. And another thing that uh, came from the, the foundational ideas of, of the sexual liberation movement uh, is uh, the degradation of women in our popular culture. So uh, we, uh, we saw recently that um, rap hip hop became the most widely listened to form of music in America last year, just at the same time that the At Me Too movement was arising. So what, an, what a paradox that is, right? that we're not supposed to listen now to Baby It's Cold Outside. We heard that a lot at, uh, at Christmas time. My favorite Christmas but song now. We, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, mine too. Mine too. But um, at, at the same time, we are listening to uh, rappers who degrade women in, in almost indescribable ways um, without the, the slightest twinge. We don't see the, the contradiction there. Um, interestingly, the, the most widely read women's magazine in the world is now Cosmopolitan, which totally buys into this, that um, casual sex is the way that uh, women can make themselves most real. You know, this is yep. what they should aspire to. Um, and I mentioned in the article also that Fifty Shades of Grey, which was written for a female audience, and uh, glamorizes sadomasochistic abuse, sexual abuse of a vulnerable young woman by a powerful man, is the fastest selling book in history. The author, within nine months, earned $95 million selling to a female audience <laughs> uh, a book that portrays women as, you know, sex slaves, uh, helpless, and, you know, enjoying it uh, to boot. 
so so the fact that that our our culture can embrace all of this at the same time and go ballistic when Brett Kavanaugh is proposed as Supreme Court justice uh, it it shows just how how deeply confused we are on these these critical issues. We really are, and the sexual revolution being one thing, and then the rise of this second wave feminism that we mentioned the three authors you talked about, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, Susan Faludi, a lot of other cultural contributions by people to our cultural thinking. But their arguing about feminism was really just a, a victimized woman and pain. Yes. Versus, but, but historically, when you get to a point I want to, it's actually from your, a previous article you wrote, but I want to get into it too, that really Western civilization had prior to the sexual revolution, prior to this, uh, you know, second wave feminism really had elevated women in many ways to more equality with men than most other societies had in human history. Oh, no, no question about that. I mean, so we had, for example, yeah. go ahead, you go ahead. Well, uh, just as a kind of related point, um, I'm, I'm so struck, in fact, this morning when I was looking at the agenda of uh, the Women's March, I, I'm, I'm so struck by the rage, the bitterness uh, that, that seems to drive these women who, in fact, are the most fortunate women in world history. They, they should be feeling, of course, you know, but we don't have perfection and, and we never will as, as human beings in the fallen world. But the fact that gratitude for the fact that they can have children uh, painlessly or virtually painlessly today, that they have just an extraordinary range of opportunities. They could become a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 today. Women are the majority of law and medical students. Why they, they don't feel the slightest gratitude at their you know, supremely fortunate position, and they allow their lives to be shaped and dictated by this kind of anger and resentment uh, is, is, is a very sad thing that we have to hope our daughters can see through. It's an, it is so ignorant. I mean, the, the stats you just gave, and I've talked about them on the show many times, that women are, uh, they're ahead of men. Even in the top law schools, medical schools, are more higher percentage of women than men. Yep. Graduating classes, That's right. women are thriving in America. And yet somehow the Women's March has emerged at trying to claim it represents all women, trying to, to portray an America that seems to exist only in their angry, feminist, vitriolic, frankly, anti-male mind. And part of what I want to keep urging women is do not agree that Women's March speaks for you. And especially when they, and I don't know if you noticed, uh, Catherine, when you were looking at the Women's March things, but they list a whole host of issues unrelated in any way to the relations between men and women or to gender yeah. equality. I mean, they're off on every conceivable, you know, uh, immigrants' rights issue. It is just, the Women's March represents, my two cents, Women's March represents the radical leftists in this country, left-wing views on every single, and any issue you can think of, the left-wing view on everything, all thrown together and then calling it the Women's March, trying to co-opt women into thinking, co-opt women into thinking, because you're a woman and you want to stand up for equality, you've got to believe all of our agenda items. Yes, and, and really I think the roots of this kind of arrogance um, are in the, the foundational principles, if you can call them that, that um, gave rise to this form of, of radical feminism. Its roots are in 
um, cultural or what some have called vulgar Marxism, not meaning there, you know, no private property, but meaning that um, that all of human life, uh, all of social life is to be understood as a power struggle between oppressed and oppressor groups. And uh, here, um, of course, uh, Marx and Lenin taught that uh, only a vanguard of enlightened people who have shed their false consciousness uh, can lead the masses, the, you know, the rest of us, uh, to the promised land. And in fact, the promised land is a term that Susan Faludi used um, when she wrote her feminist bestseller about 30 years ago. Uh, so, so there's a tremendous elitism uh, in this kind of movement. We are all asked to give way uh, to these women who say that they have our interests in heart, whereas, in fact, uh, what they really want to do, I think, is organize and control a society to the extent it's possible for them. Absolutely true. Another term, in fact, to our listeners, we're going to talk about after this next break, cultural Marxism, which is another term that's being used to describe the tendency of the American left to think their mission is to acquire more power, to control more aspects of your personal li- of, of your life in every way. But Catherine, I'm going to hit one more point you made, which you were talking about how all of this, this you know, combination, the sexual revolution, a confused, angry, distrustful, and accusatory feminism, have result, has resulted in making it harder for young women to find healthy, normal, respectful relationships with men. Can you speak to that? Yes, and I think that is, that, that's an invisible casualty of, of this uh, clash of, of feminism and uh, the sexual liberation movement uh, more and more um, men are, are being changed by uh, this uh, a society that is blaming toxic masculinity rather than uh, the premises of the sexual liberation movement and uh, radical feminism for uh, the kinds of problems that we're, we're seeing. Uh, men are withdrawing from women increasingly uh, because of the lynch mob mentality that we discussed in, in connection with the At Me Too movement. Women are increasingly giving up on men. They're, as you say, finding it harder and harder to find a, a respectful, kind, considerate man. And Mark Rignerus, uh, who is a sociologist who has commented on this kind of cultural fallout, says one reason is that sex has become cheap today, uh, largely because of the, the movements we've been talking about, saying that um, women used to demand a lot in return for sex because, of course, the consequences for them are, are potentially so much greater as, you know, potential mothers, etc. And they haven't, uh, in recent years, been expecting much from men in return for their, their sexual attention. So he says, Regnerus says, men in turn don't feel compelled to supply these goods the way that they once did. So in in his recent book, Cheap Sex, he concludes women are, quote, hoping to find good men without supporting the sexual norms that would actually make men better. So, yes, in my daughter's generation, I'm seeing this constantly. Wonderful young women who are finding it harder and harder to find young men who are decent, respectful, and uh, willing to commit to a life together. It is, I'm sure, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know there are statistics that show that there is a declining uh, marriage rate or that the average age of marriage oh, gets older yeah. and older. And, yeah. you know, the whole it, it's so funny because the sexual revolution movement and the uh, second wave feminism movement 
both tried to hold themselves out as steps of progress and throwing off patriarchal, uh, patriarchal societal limits and old-fashioned mores that didn't seem, that just had no place in the modern world. Um, and really they resulted in alienating the sexes, alienating and making it more difficult for young people to find the kind of relationship they want to create a home, a family, a marriage, a, a life together. They have been, they've kind of, they, they have those two movements, the sexual revolution and the second wave feminism, really end up hurting the very people they said they were standing up to help. Yeah. Yes, I, that's right. And I think this is what we often see uh, when we see the fruits of movements that are based on theories, on utopian notions of the world and of uh, men and women and how they're actually uh, constructed. Uh, intentions here can lead to all kinds of very unpleasant and unanticipated consequences, and that's what we're seeing today, I'm afraid. Well, I love that you're writing about it. As I mentioned to our listeners, you can go to our website, americacanbetalk.org, and read the article, False Feminism, How We Got From Sexual Liberation to Hashtag Me Too. I cannot begin to summarize all the great points and, his, and footnoted historical arguments. And then a much older piece. You've actually been thinking about these issues for quite a while because Catherine... That's right. <laughs> she has. <laughs> Catherine Kirsten wrote a piece um, back in 1991, um, and it's called What Do Women Want? A Conservative Feminist Manifesto. And I know we can't go through the whole article, but you do end up near the end. I don't mean to put you in the spot because you may not have it in front of you, but you basically say there are just a few core things a conservative feminist should really want to stand up for women in modern American society. Do you, do you, know, do you have in mind what those were, or do you want me to? Um, well, I, what I think is, is so important, and this is not just for, for women, but for men, is to, to think first of what we want to be as human beings, as citizens, um, not to see ourselves as individuals, people of character, not first and foremost as members of a group, in this case, women, to reject group identity, and instead to support uh, and try to cultivate within ourselves um, what uh, Margaret Thatcher called the vigorous virtues. Uh, you know, strength and um, self-reliance and uh, integrity, uh, self-mastery, uh, delay of gratification, these, these kinds of things that help people of either sex get through uh, life, which, of course, throws all kinds of curved balls at us and can be very, very challenging. Uh, in, in the end, we have to rely on ourselves, on our own, our own human dignity, uh, and think of ourselves also as a connected member of a community. So unlike feminism, which so often saw uh, women's traditional responsibilities in the home as burdens, we, we see our role uh, in families and communities as, as um, ethical obligations that, that bring us joy. I mean, this must all be balanced uh, well with you know, public life as well. But... Um, Yes, when I wrote that article, in fact, I had four little kids. I think at that point they were eight down to two. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so it's so it, it's fun for me to to look back at it uh, now that I'm a grandmother and um, and recall uh, what life looked uh, like for me at that point. I was a lawyer who had just decided to stay home with my kids, and I was struggling with you know what that meant because it was so politically incorrect. 
so uh, it, it's, an, it's a set of reflections. It's a lot of fun for me to look back on as well. It is a stellar piece. And one thing you mentioned that earlier article, which is even more relevant today, is the idea of cultural degradation and how we, as a country, we individuals, people, get to decide what our culture is. We either support, encourage, go along with the degradation of the role of women, the depiction of women in the Cosmopolitan magazine or in any other social uh, or in rap music, or we try to stand up for something better about what women really should be and how they should be treated, how they should be depicted in our cultural, uh, in our culture. So, uh, Catherine Kirsten, you, uh, I want to, I hope we can do this again because I feel we barely skimmed the surface. And I also want to give you opportunity since you're with the uh, Center for um, the American Experiment. How can people find you and find these articles? Um, well, we are at uh, www.americanexperiment.com. Uh, dot org, and um, this is uh, a place where uh, issues of this kind are are uh, examined uh, on a daily basis. Uh, cultural issues, issues of education, uh, all sorts of, of social and economic issues as well. So, certainly, uh, it'd be absolutely wonderful if people uh, would would visit us there and take a look at what we do. Yeah, Center of the American Experiment is a stellar, high, just a um, among the premier think tanks in this country, state-based think tanks, thinking through our culture, our policies, our laws to try to preserve this precious, extraordinary experiment in human liberty, which is America. So, Catherine, thank That's you exactly so much. Exactly what joining. it is. That's right. Thank you for it's a joining me. Great pleasure, me. Debbie. Enjoyed it very much. Thanks. Thank you so much, folks. We'll be right back with one little piece about State of the Union. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie George Addis. I want to encourage you, unlike what Maxine Waters is encouraging you, encourage you to listen to the State of the Union tonight. President Trump is doing a State of the Union. As you know, a lot of kerfuffles and hassles getting this far. But I want to contrast two Americans and how they've spoken about America recently. Maxine Waters, U.S. Congresswoman, has been deriding and even prior to President Trump's victory, Prior to his inauguration, she has been demeaning uh, him and his his team, his policies. She has encouraged people to disrupt, to hassle his staff, hassle anyone connected with the Trump administration. You know, badger them during dinner when they're out in restaurants. She has she has urged civil unrest. She has urged people. Yesterday, she was out at some press conference saying how America should not tune in the State of the Union. She's not going. Turn it off. Don't go. Don't listen to this president. And this is a woman who's uh, looking at a president who has brought the highest economic achievement for African Americans in this country, meaning we have the lowest unemployment rate in, in history for African Americans. We have a booming economy that has produced more jobs for more people of every conceivable racial an ethnic and national origin background. We have jobs bursting forth. We have an economy that's humming. We have tremendous things happening around the world because of the leadership of America emerging again. And this woman is urging you not to listen to the State of the Union. Contrast her with Gladys Knight, who sang the national anthem at the 
Super Bowl this past Sunday. She was urged by many in the radical left to refuse to sing at the, uh, the um, they're still because of the protest uh, against the NFL, urged by people not to sing the national anthem um, at the Super Bowl. She sang anyway. She gave a beautiful answer to those people who were urging her to boycott uh, the NFL because of the Colin Kaepernick situation, because of the, the whole you know, kneeling during the national anthem and Colin Kaepernick now doesn't have a team to play on. And her remarks very quickly, Glass Nice remarks include things essentially saying, I am here today on Sunday, February 3rd, to give the anthem back its voice, to stand for the historic choice of words, the way it unites us when we hear it, and to free it from the same prejudices prejudices and struggles I have fought long and hard for all my life, from walking back hallways, from marching with social leaders, from using my voice for good. This is a woman who decided to go ahead and, and sang a beautiful rendition of the national anthem at the Super Bowl. She's standing up for America. I want to hit one more thing that President Trump is going to do because he's got to stay of the union tonight. You heard our last guest, Catherine Kirsten, talking about the idea that we have just an endless effort to divide America into victims and oppressors. This is the theme of the radical anti-American left on issue after issue after issue after issue after issue. The argument is never about facts. It's never about data. It's never about truth. It's never about what's happening in the country. It's never about reality. It is about creating a mindset in this country to divide us, to come up with the latest list of victims and identifying victim groups and forming them into, into identity victim groups who are then issuing their grievance complaints against other Americans. This is how the American left operates 24-7 on all issues. What they can't stand is that this president has done more for this country in terms of bringing the country back to prosperity, back to security, back to actual employment, the way you're supposed to be in a country based on free markets. We're gonna have a battle royale in 2020 over socialism versus freedom, over secure border versus abandoning the border. And you're gonna hear a lot of that tonight. President Trump is going to talk a lot about drawing us together, coming together. I really encourage you to listen. And then we'll talk about the State of the Union tomorrow. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk? Thank you to Matt, the producer, who's always wonderful and helpful. Uh, please, like, if you're watching on Facebook, please like this page. Please review this page. Follow me on Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. Subscribe on YouTube. Really appreciate subscribing on YouTube. Email me at AmericanCanWeTalk at gmail.com. And come back every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, where I'll always be talking truth about America because America matters. Talk to you tomorrow. America, can we talk truth about America? Can you hear us now? The soul of You're listening to RNCN, the digital destination for premium talk radio.